Chapter Thirty Eight of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Thirty Eight. The Quest. The first ten days after Hetty's departure passed as quietly as any other days with the family at Hall Farm and with Adam at his daily work. They had expected Hetty to stay away a week or ten days at least, perhaps a little longer if Dinah came back with her, because there might be something to detain them at Snowfield. But when a fortnight had passed, they began to feel a little surprised that Hetty did not return. She must surely have found it pleasanter to be with Dinah than anyone could have supposed. Adam, for his part, was getting very impatient to see her, and he resolved that if she did not appear the next day, Saturday, he would set out on Sunday morning to fetch her. There was no coach on a Sunday, but by setting out before it was light and perhaps getting a lift in a cart by the way, he would arrive pretty early at Snowfield and bring back Hetty the next day, and Dinah too, if she were coming. It was quite time Hetty came home, and he could afford to lose his Monday for the sake of bringing her. His project was quite approved at the farm when he went there on Saturday evening. Mrs. Poyser desired him emphatically not to come back without Hetty, for she had been quite too long away considering the things she had to get ready by the middle of March, and a week was surely enough for anyone to go out for their health. As for Dinah, Mrs. Poyser had small hope of their bringing her, unless they could make her believe the folks at Hayslope were twice as miserable as the folks at Snowfield. Though, said Mrs. Poyser by way of conclusion, you might tell her she's got but one aunt left and she's wasted pretty nigh to a shadow, and we shall perhaps all be gone twenty miles further off her next Michaelmas, and shall die of broken hearts among strange folks, and leave the children fatherless and motherless. Nay, nay, said Mr. Poyser, who certainly had the air of a man perfectly heart-whole, it isn't so bad as that. They're looking rarely now, and getting flesh every day. But I'd be glad for Dinah to come, and she'd help thee with the little ones, and they took to her wonderful. So at daybreak on Sunday Adam set off. Seth went with him the first mile or two, but the thought of Snowfield and the possibility that Dinah might come again made him restless, and the walk with Adam in the cold morning air, both in their best clothes, helped to give him a sense of Sunday calm. It was the last morning in February, with a low gray sky, and a slight hoar-frost on the green border of the road, and on the black hedges. They heard the gurgling of the full brooklet hurrying down the hill, and the faint twittering of the early birds, for they walked in silence, though with a pleased sense of companionship. "'Good-bye, lad,' said Adam, laying his hand on Seth's shoulder and looking at him affectionately as they were about to part. "'I wish thee wast going all the way with me, and as happy as I am.' "'I'm content, Addy, I'm content,' said Seth cheerfully. I'll be an old bachelor belike, and make a fuss with thy children." They turned away from each other, and Seth walked leisurely homeward, mentally repeating one of his favorite hymns. He was very fond of hymns. Dark and cheerless is the morn unaccompanied by thee. Joyless is the day's return, till thy mercy's beams I see. Till thou inward light impart, glad my eyes and warm my heart. Visit, then, this soul of mine, pierce the gloom of sin and grief, fill me radiancy divine, 
scatter all my unbelief, more and more thyself display, shining to the perfect day. Adam walked much faster, and any one coming along the Oakbourne Road at sunrise that morning must have had a pleasant sight in this tall, broad-chested man, striding along with a carriage as upright and firm as any soldier's, glancing with keen glad eyes at the dark blue hills as they began to show themselves on his way. Seldom in Adam's life had his face been so free from any cloud of anxiety as it was this morning, and this freedom from care, as is usual with constructive practical minds like his, made him all the more observant of the objects round him, and all the more ready to gather suggestions from them towards his own favourite plans and ingenious contrivances. His happy love, the knowledge that his steps were carrying him nearer and nearer to Hetty, who was soon to be his, was to his thoughts what the sweet morning air was to his sensations. It gave him a consciousness of well-being that made activity delightful. Every now and then there was a rush of more intense feeling toward her, which chased away other images than Hetty, and along with that would come a wondering thankfulness that all this happiness was given to him, that this life of ours had such sweetness in it. For Adam had a devout mind, though he was perhaps rather impatient of devout words, and his tenderness lay very close to his reverence, so that the one could hardly be stirred without the other. But after feeling had welled up and poured itself out in this way, busy thought would come back with the greatest vigour, and this morning it was intent on schemes by which the roads might be improved that were so imperfect all through the country, and on picturing all the benefits that might come from the exertions of a single country gentleman, if he would set himself to getting the roads made good in his own district. It seemed a very short walk, the ten miles to Oakbourne, that pretty town within sight of the blue hills where he breakfasted. After this the country grew barer and barer, no more rolling woods, no more wide-branching trees near frequent homesteads, no more bushy hedgerows, but grey stone walls intersecting the meagre pastures and dismal wide-scattered grey stone houses on broken lands where mines had been and were no longer. "'A hungry land,' said Adam to himself. "'I'd rather go southward, where they say it's as flat as a table, than to come to live here, though if Dinah likes to live in a country where she can be the most comfort to folks, she's in the right way to live on this side, for she must look as if she'd come straight from heaven, like the angels in the desert, to strengthen them as has got nothing to eat. And when at last he came in sight of Snowfield, he thought it looked like a town that was fellow to the country, though the stream through the valley where the great mill stood gave a pleasant greenness to the lower fields. The town lay grim, stony, and unsheltered, up the side of a steep hill, and Adam did not go forward to it at present, for Seth had told him where to find Dinah. It was at a thatched cottage outside the town, a little way from the mill, an old cottage standing sideways toward the road, with a little bit of potato-ground before it. Here Dinah lodged with an elderly couple, and if she and Hetty happened to be out, Adam could learn where they were gone, and when they would be at home again. Dinah might be out on some preaching errand, and perhaps she would have left Hetty at home. 
Adam could not help hoping this as he recognized the cottage by the roadside before him. There shone out in his face that involuntary smile which belongs to the expectation of a near joy. He hurried his step along the narrow causeway and rapped at the door. It was opened by a very clean old woman with a slow, palsied shake of the head. "'Is Dinah Morris at home?' said Adam. "'Eh, no,' said the old woman, looking up at this tall stranger with a wonder that made her slower of speech than usual. "'Will you please to come in?' she added, retiring from the door, as if recollecting herself. "'Why, yeah, brother, to the young man as come afore, aren't ye?' "'Yes,' said Adam, entering. "'That was Seth Bede. I'm his brother Adam. He told me to give his respects to you and to your good master.' "'Aye, the same to him. He was a gracious young man. And ye feature him only ye darker. Sit ye down, the armchair. My man isn't a come home from meeting.' Adam sat down patiently, not liking to hurry the shaking old woman with questions but looking eagerly towards the narrow, twisting stairs in one corner, for he thought it was possible Hetty might have heard his voice and would come down them. "'So you are come to see Dinah Morris,' said the old woman, standing opposite to him. "'And you didn't know she was away from home, then?' "'No,' said Adam. "'But I thought it likely she might be away, seeing as it's Sunday. But the other young woman, is she at home, or gone along with Dinah?' The old woman looked at Adam with a bewildered air. "'Gone along wi' her,' she said. "'Ah, Dinah's gone to Leeds, a big town you may a heard on, where there's a many lord's people. She's been gone since Friday was a fortnight. They sent her the money for her journey. You may see her room here,' she went on, opening a door and not noticing the effect of her words on Adam. He rose and followed her, and darted an eager glance into the little room, with its narrow bed, the portrait of Wesley on the wall, and the few books lying on the large Bible. He had had an irrational hope that Hetty might be there. He could not speak in the first moment after seeing that the room was empty. An undefined fear had seized him. Something had happened to Hetty on the journey. Still the old woman was so slow of speech and apprehension that Hetty might be at Snowfield after all. "'It's a pity you didn't know,' she said. "'Have you come from your own country a purpose to see her?' "'But Hetty, Hetty Sorrel,' said Adam abruptly, "'where is she?' "'I know nobody by that name,' said the old woman, wonderingly. "'Is it anybody you've heard on at Snowfield?' Did there come no young woman here, very young and pretty, Friday was a fortnight, to see Dinah Morris? Nay, I've seen no young woman. Think, are you quite sure, a girl eighteen years old with dark eyes and curly hair and a red cloak on and a basket on her arm? You couldn't forget her if you saw her. Nay, Friday was a fortnight. It was the day as Dinah went away. There come nobody. There's ne'er been nobody asking for her till you come, for the folks about know as she's gone. Oh, dear, oh, dear, is there summat the matter? 
The old woman had seen the ghastly look of fear in Adam's face, but he was not stunned or confounded. He was thinking eagerly where he could inquire about Hetty. Yes, a young woman started from our country to see Dinah. Friday was a fortnight. I came to fetch her back. I'm afraid something has happened to her. I can't stop. Good-bye. He hastened out of the cottage, and the old woman followed him to the gate, watching him sadly with her shaking head as he almost ran towards the town. He was going to inquire at the place where the Oakbourne coach stopped. No, no young woman like Hetty had been seen there. Had any accident happened to the coach a fortnight ago? No? And there was no coach to take him back to Oakbourne that day? Well, he would walk. He couldn't stay here in wretched inaction. But the innkeeper, seeing that Adam was in great anxiety, and entering into this new incident with the eagerness of a man who passes a great deal of time with his hands in his pockets, looking into an obstinately monotonous street, offered to take him back to Oakbourne in his own taxed cart this very evening. It was not five o'clock. There was plenty of time for Adam to take a meal and yet to get to Oakbourne before ten o'clock. The innkeeper declared that he really wanted to go to Oakbourne and might as well go to-night. He should have all Monday before him then. Adam, after making an ineffectual attempt to eat, put the food in his pocket, and drinking a draught of ale, declared himself ready to set off. As they approached the cottage it occurred to him that he would do well to learn from the old woman where Dinah was to be found in Leeds. If there was trouble at the Hall Farm, he only half admitted the foreboding that there would be. The poisers might like to send for Dinah. But Dinah had not left any address, and the old woman, whose memory for names was infirm, could not recall the name of the blessed woman who was Dinah's chief friend in the society at Leeds. During that long, long journey in the taxed cart, there was time for all the conjectures of importunate fear and struggling hope. In the very first shock of discovering that Hetty had not been to Snowfield, the thought of Arthur had darted through Adam like a sharp pang, but he tried for some time to ward off its return by busying himself with modes of accounting for the alarming fact, quite apart from that intolerable thought. Some accident had happened. Hetty had by some strange chance got into the wrong vehicle from Oakbourne. She had been taken ill and did not want to frighten them by letting them know. But this frail fence of vague improbabilities was soon hurled down by a rush of distinct agonizing fears. Hetty had been deceiving herself in thinking that she could love and marry him. She had been loving Arthur all the while, and now in her desperation at the nearness of their marriage she had run away, and she was gone to him. The old indignation and jealousy rose again and prompted the suspicion that Arthur had been dealing falsely, had written to Hetty, had tempted her to come to him, being unwilling, after all, that she should belong to another man besides himself. Perhaps the whole thing had been contrived by him, and he had given her directions how to follow him to Ireland, for Adam knew that Arthur had been gone thither three weeks ago, having recently learnt it at the chase. Every sad look of Hetty's since she had been engaged to Adam returned upon him now with all the exaggeration of painful retrospect. He had been foolishly sanguine and confident, 
The poor thing hadn't perhaps known her own mind for a long while, had thought that she could forget Arthur, had been momentarily drawn towards the man who offered her a protecting, faithful love. He couldn't bear to blame her. She never meant to cause him this dreadful pain. The blame lay with that man, who had selfishly played with her heart, and perhaps even deliberately lured her away. At Oakbourne, the ostler at the Royal Oak remembered such a young woman as Adam described getting out of the Treddleston coach more than a fortnight ago. Wasn't likely to forget such a pretty lass as that in a hurry. Was sure she had gone on by the Buxton coach that went through Snowfield, but had lost sight of her while he went away with the horses, and had never set eyes on her again. Adam then went straight to the house from which the Stonington coach started. Stonington was the most obvious place for Hetty to go first, whatever might be the destination, for she would hardly venture on any but the chief coach roads. She had been noticed here, too, and was remembered to have sat on the box by the coachman. But the coachman could not be seen, for another man had been driving on that road in his stead the last three or four days. He could probably be seen at Stonington, through inquiry at the inn where the coach put up. So the anxious, heart-stricken Adam must of necessity wait and try to rest till morning, nay, till eleven o'clock when the coach started. At Stonington another delay occurred, for the old coachman who had driven Hetty would not be in town again till night. When he did come, he remembered Hetty well, and remembered his own joke addressed to her, quoting it many times to Adam, and observing with equal frequency that he thought there was something more than common, because Hetty had not laughed when he joked her. But he declared, as the people had done at the inn, that he had lost sight of Hetty directly she got down. Part of the next morning was consumed in inquiries at every house in the town from which a coach started, all in vain, for you know Hetty did not start from Stonington by coach, but on foot in the grey morning. And then in walking out to the first toll gates on the different lines of road, in the forlorn hope of finding some recollection of her there. No, she was not to be traced any farther, and the next hard task for Adam was to go home and carry the wretched tidings to the hall farm. As to what he should do beyond that, he had come to two distinct resolutions amidst the tumult of thought and feeling which was going on within him while he went to and fro. He would not mention what he knew of Arthur Donathorne's behavior to Hetty till there was a clear necessity for it. It was still possible Hetty might come back, and the disclosure might be an inquiry or an offense to her and as soon as he had been home and done what was necessary there to prepare his further absence, he would start off to Ireland. If he found no trace of Hetty on the road, he would go straight to Arthur Donathorne and make himself certain how far he was acquainted with her movements. Several times the thought occurred to him that he would consult Mr. Irwin, but that thought would be useless unless he told him all, and so betrayed the secret about Arthur. It seemed strange that Adam, in the incessant occupation of his mind about Hetty, should never have alighted on the probability that she had gone to Windsor, ignorant that Arthur was no longer there. Perhaps the reason was that he could not conceive Hetty's throwing herself on Arthur uncalled. He imagined no cause that could have driven her to such a step, after that letter written in August. There were but two alternatives in his mind. Either Arthur had written to her again and enticed her away, 
or she had simply fled from her approaching marriage with himself because she found, after all, she could not love him well enough, and yet was afraid of her friend's anger if she retracted. With this last determination on his mind of going straight to Arthur, the thought that he had spent two days in inquiries which had proved to be almost useless was torturing to Adam, and yet since he would not tell the Poisers his conviction as to where Hetty was gone, or his intention to follow her thither, he must be able to say to them that he had traced her as far as possible. It was after twelve o'clock on Tuesday night when Adam reached Treddleston, and unwilling to disturb his mother and Seth and also to encounter their questions at that hour, he threw himself without undressing on a bed at the wagon overthrown, and slept hard from pure weariness. Not more than four hours, however, for before five o'clock he set out on his way home in the faint morning twilight. He always kept the key of the workshop door in his pocket so that he could let himself in, and he wished to enter without awakening his mother, for he was anxious to avoid telling her the new trouble himself by seeing Seth first and asking him to tell her when it should be necessary. He walked gently along the yard, and turned the key gently in the door, but, as expected, Jip, who lay in the workshop, gave a sharp bark. It subsided when he saw Adam holding up his finger to him to impose silence, and in his dumb, tailless joy he must content himself with rubbing his body against his master's legs. Adam was too heart-sick to take notice of Jip's fondling. He threw himself on the bench and stared dully at the wood and the signs of work around him, wondering if he should ever come to feel pleasure in them again, while Jip, dimly aware that there was something wrong with his master, laid his rough gray head on Adam's knee and wrinkled his brows to look up at him. Hitherto, since Sunday afternoon, Adam had been constantly among strange people and in strange places having no associations with the details of his daily life, and now that by the light of this new morning he was come back to his home and surrounded by the familiar objects that seemed forever robbed of their charm, the reality, the hard, inevitable reality, of his troubles pressed upon him with a new weight. Right before him was an unfinished chest of drawers, which he had been making in spare moments for Hetty's use, when his home should be hers. Seth had not heard Adam's entrance, but he had been roused by Jip's bark, and Adam heard him moving in the room above, dressing himself. Seth's first thoughts were about his brother. He would come home to-day, surely, for the business would be wanting him sadly by to-morrow. But it was pleasant to think that he had had a longer holiday than he had expected. And would Dinah come, too? Seth felt that that was the greatest happiness he could look forward to for himself, although he had no hope left that she would ever love him well enough to marry him. But he had often said to himself it was better to be Dinah's friend and brother than any other woman's husband, if he could but be always near her instead of living so far off. He came downstairs and opened the inner door leading from the kitchen to the workshop, intending to let out Jip but he stood still in the doorway, smitten with the sudden shock at the sight of Adam seated listlessly on the bench, pale, unwashed, with sunken eyes, almost like a drunkard in the morning. But Seth felt in an instant what the marks meant, not drunkenness, but some great calamity. 
Adam looked up at him without speaking, and Seth moved forwards toward the bench, himself trembling so that speech did not come readily. "'God have mercy on us, Addie,' he said in a low voice, sitting down on the bench beside Adam. "'What is it?' Adam was unable to speak. The strong man, accustomed to suppress the signs of sorrow, had felt his heart swell like a child's at this first approach of sympathy. He fell on Seth's neck and sobbed. Seth was prepared for the worst now, for even in his recollections of their boyhood Adam had never sobbed before. "'Is it death, Adam? Is she dead?' he asked in a low tone when Adam raised his head and was recovering himself. "'No, lad, but she's gone, gone away from us. She's never been to Snowfield. Dinah's been gone to Leeds ever since last Friday was a fortnight. The very day Hetty set out. I can't find out where she went after she got to Stonington." Seth was silent from utter astonishment. He knew nothing that could suggest to him a reason for Hetty's going away. "'Has she any notion what she's done it for?' he said at last. "'She canna loved me. She didn't like our marriage when it came nigh. That must be it,' said Adam. He had determined to mention no further reason. "'I hear mother stirring,' said Seth. "'Must we tell her?' "'No, not yet,' said Adam, rising from the bench and pushing the hair from his face as if he wanted to rouse himself. "'I can't have her told yet, and I must set out on another journey directly, after I've been to the village and the hall farm. I can't tell thee where I'm going, and thee must say to her I'm gone on business as nobody is to know anything about. I'll go and wash myself now.' Adam moved towards the door of the workshop, but after a step or two he turned round, and meeting Seth's eyes with a calm, sad glance, he said, "'I must take all the money out of the tin box, lad, but if anything happens to me, all the rest will be thine to take care of mother with.' Seth was pale and trembling. He felt there was some terrible secret under all this. "'Brother,' he said faintly, he never called Adam brother except in solemn moments. I don't believe you'll do anything as you can't ask God's blessing on. No, lad, said Adam, don't be afraid. I'm for doing naught but what's a man's duty. The thought that if he betrayed his trouble to his mother she would only distress him by words, half of blundering affection, half of irrepressible triumph that Hetty proved as unfit to be his wife as she had always foreseen, brought back some of his habitual firmness and self-command. He had felt ill on his journey home, he told her when she came down, had stayed all night at Treddleston for that reason, and a bad headache that still hung about him this morning accounted for his paleness and heavy eyes. He determined to go to the village in the first place, attend to his business for an hour, and give notice to Burge of his being obliged to go on a journey which he must beg him not to mention to anyone, for he wished to avoid going to the hall farm near breakfast time, when the children and servants would be in the house place, and there must be exclamations in their hearing about his having returned without Hetty. He waited until the clock struck nine before he left the workyard at the village, and set off through the fields towards the farm. 
It was an immense relief to him, as he came near the home close, to see Mr. Poyser advancing towards him, for this would spare him the pain of going to the house. Mr. Poyser was walking briskly this March morning, with a sense of spring business on his mind. He was going to cast the master's eye on the shoeing of a new cart-horse, carrying his spud as a useful companion by the way. His surprise was great when he caught sight of Adam, but he was not a man given to presentiments of evil. "'Why, Adam, lad, it's you. Have you been all this time away, and not brought the lasses back after all? Where are they?' "'No, I have not brought them," said Adam, turning round to indicate that he wished to walk back with Mr. Poyser. "'Why,' said Martin, looking with sharp attention at Adam, "'ye look bad. Is there anything happened?' "'Yes,' said Adam, heavily. "'A sad thing's happened.' I didn't find Hetty at Snowfield. Mr. Poyser's good-natured face shows signs of troubled astonishment. Not find her? What's happened to her? He said, his thoughts flying at once to bodily accident. That I can't tell whether anything's happened to her. She never went to Snowfield. She took a coach to Stonington, but I can't learn nothing of her after she got down from the Stonington coach. "'Why, you don't mean she's run away,' said Martin, standing still, so puzzled and bewildered that the fact did not yet make itself felt as a trouble by him. "'She must have done,' said Adam. "'She didn't like our marriage when it came to the point. That must be it. She mistook her feelings.' Martin was silent for a minute or two, looking on the ground and rooting up the grass with his spud without knowing what he was doing. His usual slowness was always troubled when the subject of speech was painful. At last he looked up, right in Adam's face, saying, "'Then she didn't deserve to have ye, my lad, and I feel if fault myself, for she was my niece, and I was always hot for her marrying ye. There's no amends I can make ye, lad. The more's the pity. It's a sad cut-up for ye, I doubt.' Adam could say nothing, and Mr. Poyser, after pursuing his walk for a little while, went on. "'I'll be bound she's gone after trying to get a lady-maid's place, for she'd got that in her head half a year ago, and wanted me to give my consent. But I'd thought better on her,' he added, shaking his head slowly and sadly. "'I thought better on her not to look for this after she'd gin ye her word, and—' everything's been got ready." Adam had the strongest motives for encouraging this supposition in Mr. Poyser, and he even tried to believe that it might possibly be true. He had no warrant for the certainty that she was gone to Arthur. "'It was better it should be so,' he said, as quietly as he could, if she felt she couldn't like me for a husband. Better run away before than repent after. I hope you won't look harshly on her if she comes back, as she may do if she finds it hard to get on away from home. I cannot look on her as I've done before, said Martin decisively. She's acted bad by you, and by all of us. But I'll not turn my back on her. She's but a young un, and it's the first harm I've known on her. It'll be a hard job for me to tell her aunt. 
Why didn't Dinah come back with ye? She'd a helped to pacify her aunt a bit. Dinah wasn't at Snowfield. She's been gone to Leeds this fortnight, and I couldn't learn from the old woman any direction where she is at Leeds, else I should have brought it to you. She's a deal better staying with her own kin, said Mr. Poyser indignantly, than going preaching among strange folks o that un. I must leave you now, Mr. Poyser, said Adam, for I've a deal to see to. Ay, you'd best be after your business, and I must tell the missus when I go home. It's a hard job. But, said Adam, I beg particular, you'll keep what's happened quiet for a week or two. I've not told my mother yet, and there's no knowing how things may turn out. Ay, ay, least said, soonest mended. We'd no need to say why the match is broke off, and we may hear of her after a bit. Shake hands with me, lad. I wish I could make thee amends. There was something in Martin Poyser's throat at that moment which caused him to bring out those scanty words in rather a broken fashion. Yet Adam knew what they meant all the better, and the two honest men grasped each other's hard hands in mutual understanding. There was nothing now to hinder Adam from setting off. He had told Seth to go to the chase and leave a message for the squire, saying that Adam Bede had been obliged to start off suddenly on a journey, and to say as much and no more to any one else who made inquiries about him. If the poises learned that he was gone away again, Adam knew that they were in fur, that he was gone in search of Hetty. He had intended to go right on his way from Hall Farm, but now the impulse which had frequently visited him before, to go to Mr. Irwin and make a confidant of him, recurred with a new force which belongs to the last opportunity. He was about to start on a long journey, a difficult one, by sea, and no soul would know where he was gone. If anything happened to him, or if he absolutely needed help in any matter concerning Hetty, Mr. Irwin was to be trusted, and the feeling which made Adam shrink from telling anything which was her secret must give way before the need there was that she should have someone else besides himself who would be prepared to defend her in the worst extremity. Towards Arthur, even though he might have incurred no new guilt, Adam felt that he was not bound to keep silence when Hetty's interest called on him to speak. "'I must do it,' said Adam, when these thoughts, which had spread themselves through hours of his sad journeying, now rushed upon him in an instant like a wave that had been slowly gathering. "'It's the right thing. I can't stand alone in this way any longer.'" End of chapter 38